episode of Conversations with Lila B is sponsored by Continuum Zambia, providing medical aid to the private sector in Zambia through the Bupilo Health Plan, a non-profit medical aid scheme. The Bupilo app gives you access to your health benefits at the palm of your hands. Track your benefits in real time, receive notifications every time a claim is processed, submit a claim by taking a picture of your receipt. Use the electronic membership card for identification with providers. Learn more today by visiting their website www.continuumzambia.com. Nsofwa Petronella Sampa, the founder of Nsofwa Sampa Advocacy for People with Disabilities, a recipient of the Mandela Washington Fellowship, YALI participant, and PEPFAR beneficiary. She is a trained psychosocial and clinical counselor and provides counseling to people living with HIV. Nsofwa is actively working with young women and girls to eliminate stigma against people infected with HIV AIDS and those with disabilities. She has lived with HIV for 26 years and is an example of how you can embrace your challenges and turn them into your victories. Good afternoon, Sofa. Thank you for joining me today on Conversations with Leela B. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm good. It's such a pleasure to have you on today to talk about World AIDS Day, HIV AIDS, and also living with disabilities. Um, but before we jump into all of that, how would your family describe you? Who is Nsofa? <laughs> um, my name is Nsofa Petronella Sampa. I was the only child of my parents. Uh, I lost my mom when I was 10. My dad died when I was two. I was born with HIV and um, I came to know about my status when I was about 10 years old, just like a month after I lost my mother. Mm. And um, yeah, I got to know that I was HIV positive and in the long run, because of not adhering to my treatment, I ended up having meningitis, which led to my sight loss and I also became partially deaf in my right ear. Wait, that is a that is a lot of information to take <laughs> in. So I know because So I that's in software. <laughs> yes, that's in software. I think there's probably more to you, you know, I think your family might say that you're funny because I can get your humor <laughs> a little bit. Um, but I want to talk about I, I did get a chance to see your TED talk. Yeah. And in that you had said um, obviously that you didn't know, like as you just said, that you were mm -hmm. HIV positive. Mm -hmm. So you found out from reading the words, the letters ARV on the... Not necessarily. Um, I used to go for my usual appointments. Mm -hmm. So um, that time I was staying with one of my uncles and um, one of the we went to the hospital. I used to, sometimes he would drop me off at the hospital. And then when it's time for the doctors to come through, I would um, let him know that the doc it's time for me to enter. So that day I was reading through my hospital file and I got to mm -hmm. read what the other doctor had written. Because earlier I used to attend, I used to go to a clinic. There was a clinic called, it's called Pendeton. That's where I used to collect my drugs from. 
but then I had to move to the government clinic, which is UTH. So now the doctor that I was seeing then was writing to the new doctor, right, saying that there had been their patient and that I was uh, on antiretroviral treatment. I think that time I was on Neverapine and I can't remember the other drug. And um, when I read that, I was a bit shocked because then mm. it made sense. Um, with time, I started going through, um, I think somehow my parents realized I had grown and I started asking too many questions. Mm -hmm. So I remember one time my uncle took me to the same doctor, um, the very doctor that transferred me. Um, I think she's Dr. Jumbe. She, she had to talk to me and explain that I was living with HIV. I remember her drawing some, <laughs> some soldiers, she called them soldiers, uh, referring to the CD4s and mm -hmm. she drew like some kind of bad, an bad enemy which was the virus and she was explaining that if I had not taken my medicine, these CD4s won't be able to fight for me and I wouldn't be healthy. And if I don't, um, if I take my medicine, they will be able to fight and the virus will be weakened. Mm. So I think at that point I understood, but I think the longer it took with taking medication every day, that became a challenge because I thought it was going to be okay. As soon as I get to be healthy, everything will be fine. Everything mm. will go back to if I don't have to continue taking this medication. Another problem was I was the only one in the home that was taking these drugs. I think I did understand at the, t at the age of 10 what HIV was. Mm. I understood that because it was all over the media. It was all over TV. It was on posters. It was whenever we had classes, we had anti-AIDS clubs, which used to talk about um, ways of not taking or having HIV. So it wasn't something new to me, but I think it's the, the, the idea behind it that it was a sexually transmitted infection. Mm -hmm. So I think my challenge was, how did I get it? Yeah. Yeah, that was a question I had. scary as a child because as much as I do appreciate the doctor tried to draw something, right? Yes. Which is a good way to try and almost relate the message to a young child. Yeah. But at the same time, when the messaging around it, even with the posters, is scary and it's always been about yes. if you have unprotected sex, this is how you get it. And then you're only 10 years old. Exactly. How do you even begin to ask those questions or understand? Yeah. So... I think with time, I started to understand that I had to take the medication, but my challenge was the fact that I had to take it every day. Because mm. I thought I was fine. I, I had gone, my CD4 count had risen, the viral load was going down, I was improving. But I think the fact that I couldn't talk about it in the home like I can now was also another problem. I couldn't talk to anybody about it in the home. It was difficult to conversate with anybody about HIV. So that wasn't helping. And then also, when I went to school, whenever we had anti-AIDS clubs, they never said anything positive about HIV. Yeah. It was always in the negatives. It's always the doom and gloom. <laughs> yes. So for me, I thought, I think I'm in the wrong part of the earth. Maybe I shouldn't be here. And slowly I started withdrawing. Like, mm. I just felt it wasn't necessary to talk to certain people. And how do you even begin to talk to your age mates? That's a very sensitive exactly. age where everyone is, you know, coming into their own, forming opinions. Yeah. People are bonding with different friends, forming cliques. Now, you don't want to be the outsider. No. 
or the girl you know with hiv or with any kind of it's the same as having a disability you don't want to seem like you're different from others yeah sometimes when you're that young you want to just fit in yes so i think with time um i can i i was doing fine i wouldn't say i wasn't doing fine but i think my problem grew as i was growing you know when i became a teenager there were boys in the society you know i had friends but for me it was always like there was never a month that i wouldn't miss class mm. because i had to go and see the doctor i remember trying one day talking to my doctor saying is it possible that instead of me coming during the 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 week the the, the school days maybe i can be coming april august or december to the hospital so that because I only have I only have to come every after three months so it's yeah. not necessary that I have to be coming during school days I'm missing classes and I don't want to always be giving reason why I can't come to to school yeah. my teacher will start wondering why maybe I just don't want to come to school so I tried that and I think it was a bit it wasn't helpful because sometimes there were times when I had to go and see the doctor every after two weeks because I had to take my blood slides and things like that. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't helping me because every time I would be questioned, but why does she always have to, you know, people talk. So yeah. my friends would wonder why I always had to, um, to, to always miss class. And then when I went into grade eight, um, when I went to secondary school, I had moved in with my mom's sister and yeah. uh, I went into a boarding school. And one of the days when I was there, I think one of my friends noticed I was on medication. So she was like, I don't know, something, I think maybe the school had an idea or maybe the, 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 the pupils had a, an idea to say, maybe she's on ARVs. And mm-hmm. then one of them one day came to me and said, what's this medicine you take every day? Are these ARVs or what? I think she was just guessing from the way she asked but the fact that somebody could actually of all things think of ARVs to me killed it so I decided to throw my drugs and I never took my medication for a good three months which didn't help me because then my CD4 count started dropping and I had to change drugs because the medication I was taking became resistant to the drug meaning the drug wasn't um it was not working like the medication wasn't working so the the virus now had more power to to fight the drugs so they had to change the drugs to some other type of drug which was more stronger and too many in terms of number because initially i was taking two tablets and then i had to now start taking more than two which was about i think it was about eight tablets including septin which made it about 10 every day so that wasn't helping and I think that was a period of time that I met Dr. Manasseh Piri because that moment I had just given up. I just said, this thing is just going to kill me because the, one of the things that also made it worse for me was the fact that as much as we were taking this medication, there's no cure to this. You mm-hmm. have to take it for the rest of your life. And, and it I w- seems daunting and I'm yeah. sure it becomes exhausting. As you said, even a child having to take something every day. Every day, when yes. When all your friends can, you know, wake up, bath, put on their clothes, exactly. play outside. You still have to think of, oh, I need I to take to my this. medicine. And then not only just taking it, you have to take it at a specific time mm. every day. If you miss or you forget by an hour, you're scolded. You're... So all that wasn't helping. So, and then the thing is, 
in all this there was really no one in the family that i would really reach out to i had um i, I remember once i think one of my cousins i tried to talk to her and just explain to her that i had hiv but instead of i her reaction was that she broke down like she just i was like okay i think i shouldn't have said this mm. i was like i'm just joking i don't think it's serious maybe this maybe they just put the hiv on the medication because what i did i got the medication and showed it to her like this medication i was about 12 mm-hmm. to 12 to 13 and then she said no you can't be hiv positive you know she 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 just threw a tantrum so i think at that moment i said i think maybe she's not the right person to mm. i'm not supposed to tell her anything well i also think you know um regardless of even possibly how old she was even just the time and what we knew yes i think the reason she broke down is because she probably thought this is scary oh my gosh you're going to die because that's yes. how it felt every poster was sort of sending you that message exactly so i think um i think from that time i just from her reaction also i started slowly closing up mm. and i remember sometimes they would try and tell me no but even this cousin of yours look at her she's looking healthy they'll give me examples but then all those things were not helping me because for me i was thinking where's my mother when i need her maybe she if she was here she would have been able to tell me about this mm. but she decided to go before me even before telling me that i was i have this virus and then i was trying to also understand because growing up i grew up a sickly child like mm. i was in and out of hospital so all that made sense at that moment like maybe that's why it's because of this virus so either way the fact that mom is gone i'll equally die so let me just wait for that day and that was the moment i was at where mm. i was just say waiting for one day i'll be in a graveyard or something but i don't think that was what god had planned for me because no, i think no and to, thank god yes. because i can just all those things that you're describing and then also you got meningitis then became yes. blind and then was that also when you became partially deaf yes actually what happened for the meningitis is before I, before they actually found that i had meningitis i had collapsed mm. um i was actually preparing to go to school I was in my 11th grade preparing to go to school because i was remo- um, when i went, when i uh completed my grade 9 my aunt insisted that I should be in a day school so that mm-hmm. she can be monitoring this me this was post the boarding school yes. yeah so then after the boarding school I went into day school where she was monitoring me and my um my dad's brother my young brother my I call him my dad he always came over like he was always here like every weekend sometimes I would even get frustrated because he would always bring me these gifts of food and all these healthy foods which for me wasn't helping you know like i didn't like it because it's like whatever i ate had to come out so then one day i was preparing to go to school it should have been in september i was preparing to go to school and because i was very weak i couldn't even move so my um i was at king highway were you taking your medication yes i was that time now i was totally on observation like there was no one who was not everybody was on my neck because they noticed i had lost so much weight Mm -hmm. so If anything I was actually being given medication like I didn't even have a choice just after I have breakfast the medicine is in my hands and I have to take it they are looking at me to ensure that I actually do swallow it so is this because before when you stopped yes it's because of the the fact that I stopped and 
sometimes I even got to a point where sometimes even after I was talked to by Dr. the late Manasseh Piri, mm-hmm. I would sometimes take my medicine and maybe a week, the next week maybe I'll just be like, okay, I'm fine and do things you, like that. Do you think obviously aside from the fact that it's hard for anyone let alone a child to be having to take this medicine on the daily and to feel different do you think also your mental health had something to do with it because yes you, you really didn't have where do you go to learn the whole truth of what happened who yes. do you have conversations with who can say this is not a death sentence or who can you even just talk to on a day to day and complain and say I don't like the fact that I I feel different or I have to do these things. Yeah. So do you think that played a part in I think it did because honestly I don't think I was mentally okay because sometimes even in class I remember there were times when my teacher would tell me to concentrate which mm-hmm. was always a case and my grades started going down because I wasn't concentrating and my mind would just draw from instead of talking instead of maybe learning chemistry the next thing i'm thinking of is maybe this is how the virus you know everything just went towards the virus like yeah even my eating habits and as much as i tried to control myself and whenever somebody told me i had lost weight that was just something off they were just not helping yeah. and slowly i started losing weight i remember my friends would i'm sure they knew something i remember telling one of my friends that i was hiv positive to my surprise he didn't react <laughs> the way i expected him to react mm. he didn't mind till date he doesn't mind you know he's one of those friends of mine that if today I was, he was to hear that i'm sick he would be one of the first people i think that would even be at the hospital before even my, anybody else oh, so he's one of those and that's another thing that i think that made me start realizing that maybe there are others that actually don't think the way the others thought mm. because Maybe there are people who can who look can actually past help and just see you for who you are yes. and not attach a stigma to it. Yes. And or to you. Yes, and unfortunately that was it was too late for me to realize, you know. Mm-hmm. So one on the 20th of September I remember I was heading to school I was even in my uniform. The next thing I remember is that I was in ICU and I don't even remember what really went on and how long I had stayed there but I'm told I think I should have stayed there for 2 weeks or even more. Oh wow. Because I had collapsed and they had re- they they said there was something wrong that was going on. So I stayed in ICU for some time and then I was out. I was admitted in hospital like in a normal ward and then I regained my 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 memory. I remember sometimes my friends would come to the to the hospital I don't some of them I wouldn't remember them I'd even forgotten I was in in grade 11 I thought I was in grade 7 something like that so with time I think my memory started coming back and um when I started um my treatment because I had a stiff neck I started complaining I couldn't turn my neck my head was constantly paining I think that's the moment when the doctors realized I think this should be meningitis Mm. So they had to do a lumbar puncture. Oof. I didn't know what a lumbar puncture was. I only know from watching Grey's Anatomy and I'm already <laughs> squeaming in my chair. Oh. Yeah. So I was like, what's a lumbar puncture? And I thought and then you know I had a, I have a younger cousin who she had it when she was I think she had a lumbar puncture when she was about 11 months. Well, she's a baby. So was a baby. So and she, I was like, okay, maybe it's not something serious. But then when I saw the needle, I'm like, oh god, this is going to go where? And they were like, no, it has to go through your spine. I'm like, you're joking. I'm not going to do this. 
so my aunt was like no but you can't give up now you know you 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 fought all this well i'm like i think i'm tired of injections look i have a an injection here i have injections here everywhere my body is tired i don't think it can take in another injection so they tried to negotiate with me i remember there was a doctor from uh, nkanza uh, clinic who came and counseled me and gave me hope yeah. so the first lumbar puncture was not successful oh my gosh so and after, I gave, you've, <laughs> after you've given in and said let me do the first one it's yeah not it successful. wasn't it wasn't and i was just there screaming <laughs> i was it was impossible that's when i said i think i give up so i think after the doctor came from kanza he explained to me i told him i don't want to do this and he said he actually had to bribe me i think so but i remember he bought me a drink afterwards so i told him i said okay if this is going to hurt i will sue you and you're going to give me half your salary <laughs> and you were there laughing and i was like okay so he said i'll come at 10 and we went into the the lab they did the lumbar puncture i actually didn't even feel anything the next thing i felt was him telling me he was done hmm. so i'm like okay that wasn't as painful as the first one so they did it and he showed me just from the color that um he he could tell it was a cryptococcal meningitis which is the bacteria one okay so um he said well i had such treatment that i had treatment on the 20th of uh, november mm. and on the 25th of november i lost my sight oh wow so now this was now what was more than annoying but i was very devastated because i didn't even see this coming Yeah. They didn't warn me. But I'm told like the doctors noticed that I was going to something was going to happen and the family knew. The mm. family was aware. I think they didn't know how to tell me mm. looking at the fact that I was still not ready to even I was in the process of accepting that I had HIV. Now here comes another problem which is now the disability aspect. And at that moment because of the impact of falling when i had collapsed my right ear couldn't hear at that moment oh, so wow. then it was now a challenge like okay what's going to happen and then there goes my sight as well it followed suit i think i didn't understand what was going on because the next thing is was like and it was during the day because i was sitting on the bed i'm looking outside and the next thing is i can't see why am i not able to see you know slowly is it going you no know, like this the the side is just going down and down and down by the end of the day i think by 16 hours i was completely blind that must have been so terrifying yes and i was so shocked i tried you know and because i wasn't ready for this it took i think i just that i had given up that time i just told myself this is too much mm-hmm. i can't i can't do this anymore i mean anybody would <laughs> just dive into a deep depression exactly it's, it's a lot to deal with now you're dealing with three things um but how did you actually overcome all of that to turn it around and make it more positive what are the things that you feel like i think have helped you for me i think my family has ve- has played a major role i i have heard stories of families that have neglected mm-hmm. for me it has been totally totally different and I, when i say my family not just on my mother's side but both sides yes if today my 
dad was to walk in my dad's young brother i refer to him as my dad just the way he react to me he won't treat me they don't treat me any different mm-hmm. they don't even put the disability aspect as first because for them they still look at me as the same and so far my family played a major role and they helped me get up because I remember I lost my dad on the 25th of November. I remember that year I spent my Christmas in hospital. Um because after I lost my sight I had to tell my doctor because my my actual doctor had to stop t- talking. We became very attached mm. me and my doctor. So when I think I lost my sight he felt um he hadn't done his, his job, job well. So he had to refer me to another doctor. I think he thought it was for the best but it wasn't because I didn't know this doctor. <laughs> for me I even felt more I felt neglected mm. by him because he was the one I I knew he's the one that I had seen he saw me grow up he's the one I had been seeing from the time I was referred to from the private clinic to the um government clinic and then he had to refer me to another one. I think it's interesting you say that because of course healthcare workers are healthcare workers and yeah. it's it's it is very professional and the way they treat us is professional but I think you know having such a long um standing relationship with someone yeah. who is your personal physician like I know even for myself I'm close to some of my doctors yes. where yeah sometimes you are like oh, <laughs> you have to remember that's your doctor not yes, your girl exactly <laughs> don't crack those jokes but yes. so I can imagine that like you felt a little bit abandoned yes so but I think with after so after I came out of hospital when I was discharged I continued seeing him and um would talk to him and I remember one time just after I came out of hospital and we went for our usual appointments and were being I asked I said is there hope that I will see again and his response I'm sure he was trying not to make me feel bad he said as doctors we have done our part it's up to god mm. and I didn't break down but my aunt did <laughs> and you know it was something where she didn't expect we were hopeful you know yeah. i was hopeful that in two weeks time it will come back it to normalize you know but as the days went on there was nothing mm-hmm. so we had to slowly start accepting that okay this is now our new reality and there's nothing we can do about it yeah and i remember sitting in my room for I think a good 3 weeks I didn't want to leave the room because I was very for some reason I felt different. I felt like I was not the same me. I felt even like when my sisters would be out there they would tell me let's go and sit outside. I would feel out of place. Though nothing changed about me. I was still the same person just yeah. because I couldn't see them. I think for me that was what didn't help me. So sometimes they would all gather in my room. You know they would sit in my room and they'll be chatting there. I don't see what they're talking about, so I'd prefer they leave me alone. Mm, Until, so I can see they were trying to draw you out. Yes. Make you and make you realize that yes, some things might have to change, but yes, not everything but has to change. Exactly. Our relationships can be the same. We can still laugh and share moments of joy together. Yes. I had I have this um my young brother his name is uh, Mulambo. He was about 2 years old then. Whenever he would come to see me, 
he would he's my cousin whenever he would come home he would carry me like guiding me you know he would put my legs no you're going the wrong direction you know and he was mm-hmm. for him he didn't he didn't understand because how come my sister was able to see and now she can't mm. you know so but, all that to and for me at that moment I was just like he's troubling me but, but he didn't also a beauty in that because exactly. he was so young that for him even though he when it happened he was like you could see before now you can't but as a child he was actually able to probably adjust a lot quicker than the adult yes and just be more accepting of the situation like now it's almost like what he's always known and yes. grown up with so and sometimes he would actually you steal his father's phone and call me and tell me can you see now i'm like no but i talked to jesus last night you know such things i'm like mm-hmm. well jesus is going to answer when he wants to you know such such answers and i think as he grew he came to accept that this is just how my sister will be mm-hmm. and i also started growing and learning that okay this is going to be me And then in January 2010, I was lost my sight in 2009. Um January, I think it was on the 11th. January 11. My aunt came home one day and she was like, "I found the school." Because I was really wanted to go back to school, but then yeah. I couldn't go back to the normal school because well, to the usual school because it wasn't um I was about to say it's not normal it, it's just yeah. the, what what is perceived or yeah. whatever the regular it, the usual school yeah. like yeah because I couldn't see now and I really really wanted to write my grade 12 with my friends but unfortunately I couldn't and I remember one time I started when I started going to the school for the blind I started learning braille yeah um I remember when I when, she, when mom came and she said she got me an outfit and she was so excited she was like ah I got you something you're going to wear tomorrow when you go to school. I found a school for you. I said like school. Yeah, there's a school for the blind, but you don't learn like the way you used to learn. You have to adjust. There's what they call braille. So it's just like dots. Now I was thinking dots. So in my head I thought it's going to be like, you know, like when you start doing your learning how to write as mm-hmm. a kid, you know the way the teacher would write the a in dots and then you you kind of oh, follow yeah. the lines in my thinking that's what that's what I thought braille was. Of course because you have no concept. <laughs> exactly. Of... And it wasn't something that I never had I never came across the word braille even when I had my sight. It wasn't something I even thought existed. Mm. So I went to the the school and I was introduced to the teachers. The teachers seemed very friendly and we started learning braille. So then the first day it was she they gave me a writing frame and also um a stylus and a paper and they said I had to learn how to put the paper inside. So I put it inside and it wasn't perfect and they said I had to now write. I'm like how do I write? Like how am I even going to read? So they're like no you have to learn. You you use your fingers to read. I'm like who reads using their fingers? You use your sight to read. They're like but blind people don't have sight so they have to use their fingers. Don't worry we will teach you. I was now more than upset because this this time I was angry. I'm like these guys are playing with my mind. How do they take me to a school to learn how to read dots? Who reads dots in this day and age, you know? <laughs> and I started learning. I think I remember learning A up to J, the alphabet and 
I was just like, this is a waste of time. I should have just stayed at home in my room. Like, I didn't like it. So yeah. on Thursday, I was supposed to be going every Tuesday and Thursday. So the following Thursday, I, because um, I was supposed to go at eight. So mom was, aunt, my aunt was ready. <laughs> and she came to the room and she's like, why are you still sleeping? I'm like, I'm not going back to that school. It's... She was like, so far, you are not going to quit on me now. You are going to school. Get up and you're going to bath. And I remember she got me and took me into the tub and made sure I bathed. She bathed me that day. And I was like, you know, I went to class very angry. I was even holding my, 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 my hands like this. I'm like, I'm not going to talk to anybody today. And my teachers, yeah, my teacher, unfortunately, was very happy that I had come again. And I was not there. Like, my head was not even willing to even learn anything. So, surprisingly... There was another student that came that day, a new student, and she also had meningitis, and she also lost her sight, and she also had uh, partial deafness in her, for her it's the left ear. So I think she motivated me because that, that time I was the only student on, mm. Tuesday, on the Tuesday that I went. So now the Thursday, at least we were the two of us, and I felt more comfortable. So we started talking to each other. We talked, we talked, we talked. And it was so... Now I started getting motivated and I always wanted to go back. So I think meeting other people and them telling me their different stories, where they come from and how they lost their sight. Others who were born like that. Others who lost their sight when they were a year or three years old and what they are doing now really really inspired me and pushed me to want to finish i think that's also what life is like you know yeah um, you can be friends with people who have their differences and everything but even as human beings we're innately drawn to people where we are we have similarities where yes. we are alike so i think you being able to find your your people so to speak or your person in that young girl in your class that was something that you needed at that time and something that at least inspired and motivated you. Yes. Um, I want to go back and talk a little bit more about HIV AIDS mm -hmm. because uh, World AIDS Day. Um, as someone who is living with it, I know we kind of covered some of the, the reactions that people would have, mm -hmm. but what are still like in 2020 some common myths or, or some of the stigmas that you yourself hear? I think in terms of HIV as a person living with a disability, mm. um, one of the myths that I have constantly come across is the fact that there are people that believe here in Zambia that if they have sexual intercourse with somebody with a disability, then they have a cure. So unfortunately, you find that some people are, we are vulnerable as persons with disabilities. Mm. And it's strange that at the end of the day, we have people that think like that. And the, uh, we end up having more people with disabilities getting infected because of such beliefs. Wow, I, you know, it makes a lot of sense as you say it, but the fact that I, obviously I also have my own, um, things that I can't see because it's not my experience but yes. uh, my own bias per se that is absolutely horrific that people are doing that I mean how how do we go about now 
dismantling those that way of thinking because I mean something has to be done yeah because I remember the first time I started talking about my HIV status was after I lost my sight like in the open mm -hmm. I remember telling one of the people that actually my teacher I was telling him that I couldn't come to for my lesson on Thursday because I had to go and get my drugs so he asked me what drugs I was taking so I said I'm on ARVs I just blunted it just like that and he was like, no, you don't say that in public. Mm. So I was like, why? You know, because some people don't believe that persons with disabilities can have HIV. That, for me, was oh, an wow. eye-opener. Because I thought, so, there are people who believe that HIV can't be found with people with disabilities. Hence, the fact that they would rather sleep with them because they'll have the cure. And then there are those that believe that they are the, we are the cures because we have the because we have a disability. Yeah. But what they don't know is that HIV doesn't choose anybody. Mm. It doesn't choose whether you are rich, poor, have a disability mm -hmm. or not. It doesn't pick on anybody. And unfortunately, it's not one of those viruses that is it will tear it. You know, it's not manageable. It's not one of those that you can say, okay, I'll do this then I'll prevent it. It's sometimes you can't fight it. Mm. I gave an, I told him, I said, but here I am, I have a disability and it's because of the same HIV that I have a disability. So would you say that it's because then I don't have a, like what's, 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 how, how, how then can the cure come? Because if today somebody thought of, God forbid to rape or defile me, whatever, um, how would, how would be, how would, who would actually get infected? It's the person that is going to do that. Mm. And then in the same, that meaning if even the person has HIV, we end up having reinfection and it to keep going and the virus will not go down. Unfortunately. You mentioned reinfection. I think a lot of people might not even know what that is or I really honestly feel like a lot of people don't know what reinfection is. So, from reinfection is, for instance, because HIV is not, it's not like malaria, you know, it's not like, maybe, yeah, let me say malaria, for instance, HIV is not like malaria. Mm -hmm. I can have HIV, my partner can have HIV. The type of HIV I'm carrying and the, the, the type of HIV I'm, my partner is carrying may, be, may not be the same. Mm -hmm. So, if we are not protecting my, was ourselves from mm -hmm. each other, we might reinfect each other, meaning I might give my type of HIV to my partner, meaning the medication that my partner is taking will only work for the virus that is in him, but the one that I have infected him with won't work. Mm -hmm. Hence, the person won't be healthy. And the virus will keep going and growing and growing, but the person is taking medication. But because there's a new virus that has come on board, the person won't be healthy. So doesn't mean that because somebody is HIV positive and the partner is HIV positive or if because they're HIV positive and I'm also HIV positive, then it's fine. We can just have unprotected sex. No, that's why you even have the to clinic, be cautious. Yes, you have to be conscious because the viruses are different. It's the same HIV, yes, but according to our bodies, the viruses are different. And that's why even ARVs are not the same. Mm. People take, it's all antiretroviral treatment, but then 
it's, there are different types of antiretroviral treatment. There are those that are on first line treatment, like I'm on the second line treatment because I had uh, defaulted to the first one. So I'm now on the second line treatment because my medic, my virus that I have right now can't, um, the first line medication is weak for the first, for the second line drugs. Yeah. yeah. So we have such situations. So I think there's a lot of other, there's a lot that we need to learn. Because for me, I think after I saw that even amongst my friends with disabilities, there was that ignorance around them, I felt I think there's something I need to do. Mm. And at that time, I hadn't really had, we, me and Dr. Manasseh Piri didn't really talk. Because I think I last spoke to him in 2009, and this was now 2012. I, was, I just completed my grade 12. I was now in... Um, planning to do my psychosocial, uh, my clinical counseling course at uh, Chinama Hills College of Health Sciences. So why did you pick psychosocial counseling? I think I think I have the answer in my mind, but um, yeah, if you can share with us. Okay, I picked um, psychosocial counseling because I wanted to help that one person not to end up like me. Um, I want, I want, I still want to see less people, young people, not to lose their sight or end up having a disability where still die because of not adhering to treatment. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to know more about HIV. How can I help this person? What information is there? What are we lacking? And how do we engage persons with disabilities in the fight against HIV? I think amongst the young people in Zambia with disabilities and living with HIV, I don't think there's another person besides me that I can really say has been helpful in the fight. Mm. Because with persons with disabilities, I think we focus more on the disability aspect. Yeah. But what we forget is HIV doesn't choose. And we are also, we are vulnerable to HIV. Mm. So I think that's one of the reasons that made me think of deciding to do psychosocial counseling. But then at that moment, I didn't start with psychosocial counseling, I started with clinical counseling. And then from there, that's when I did my psychosocial counseling. And slowly I started attending meetings, even when I'm not invited, <laughs> I would go and just, as long as I've had something to do with HIV, you know, I would follow Dr. Manasseh Piri on um, radio, I would, whatever HIV questions I would, I would ask and things like that. I remember in, um, in 2012, I called him and I said, because I was hoping he hadn't changed his number. So I called him and I said, I'm one of your daughters that you have forgotten. So he says, which one? So I giving me names. Like, okay, before you go that far, let me just tell you who this is. And I don't even know where he was coming from. I was at the, at the library for the blind. He actually came to the library to just oh, wow. see me. <laughs> and he was so excited. I remember the same weekend he invited me home at his farm. And I met other women uh, like Princess Kasune, um, who also is living with HIV. You know, we had people that would sit down and, and I got inspired because these are people that have been in the fight against HIV that we've heard um, have have done greater things in their lives. But then for me now, my work was, how am I going to help that one person living with a disability not to get HIV or at least have the knowledge mm. about it? And I think that's where my work started. 
and I would, sometimes I'd be invited for radio programs. I would try my best to educate, even in the home. I would even start talking to my sisters. I remember one time my sister was at school and she was given an essay or an assignment to, to do something to do with HIV. And she was, everything she wrote was according to what I was telling her. So I was saying, what if I'm lying? You know, what if I'm yeah. lying to you? And we thank God she got an 80, which was good. So I was telling her, like, you see, you have to just learn because you have HIV next door to you, which is me. <laughs> and mm. even when I said that, I was like, did I just say that? But that's important that you said that. Yes. I feel like as everyone in the world, I feel like we do have HIV next door. If exactly. It's not in your family, I've had people who have HIV and who are living healthy lives with HIV. I, I know other people also have the same situation and I think that comes into the thing of what are we all doing as a community yes of course you have your community which is you're part of the wider community of course mm -hmm. of, of the rest of everyone else mm -hmm. but you also have your your, your uh, smaller community, community yeah with your um friends who are living with disability mm -hmm. so you also have you've chosen to take on a lot of that work but mm -hmm. i think you know whether it's me my brother my sister we need to be also having those conversations, conversations. because that's why now world aids day is even important because it shouldn't just be one day that we obviously think about this and, and we talk about it, but we all need to be allies yes. together in this fight because mm -hmm. we all need to understand the virus. We all need to understand what we can do to protect ourselves, to protect each other, and also just to remove stigma, I feel like. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. there is a lot of, of different stigmas, different theories that you hear. You know, there are people who go to specific churches where they're told throw away the drugs yes i've healed yes. you which is a huge problem i know someone who went through that and of course was very stubborn because they are a christian so they want mm -hmm. to believe what they're being told in church mm -hmm. but at the same time you know science is saying you need to take this because your condition is going to deteriorate if you don't yes and i think it's very painful to see someone who you love choose that path or yeah. go through that because at the end of the day you know it's not going to end well yes i think even like on the scene i had a friend of mine who we actually lost her in 2010 mm. because of the same thing of being held a certain church that she believed strongly in told her she was healed she needed to get blood transfusion she needed to be given some blood. She believed in her church that they don't do that. Mm. So because she couldn't do that, we ended up losing her. She just refused. Her parents tried so strongly. She said, if you're going to put this blood in my body, I will sue you. Mm. You know, such things. And how, and the how thing is she's got the right to exactly. receive treatment. <laughs> so we ended up losing her. But it still goes back to as leaders, as friends, as families, as communities, what are we doing about HIV? Mm. Because we know the truth. I think nobody, I think even three-year-olds now know that there's HIV. Well, they don't exactly know what it is, mm -hmm. but at least they have an idea that there's something called HIV in this world. Yeah. Because everybody's talking about it. But for me, I think, I feel like as, an, as individuals, the same way we can talk about going to the hospital to access 
to get Panadol should be the same talks we should have towards HIV. I said this, I think, in my last podcast, which was to do with uh, mental health, or my guest said it. He said, you know, you go to the doctor when you have a, you go to the dentist when you have a toothache. You go to the doctor if you have a headache or a scratchy throat. You know, you're always looking after those things. Why don't you also do the same for your mental health? And it's exactly as you're saying, why are we not trying to protect ourselves or look after ourselves when it comes to our sexual reproductive health? Yes. Because as much as we can fight it, it's around us, it's with us. We need to find ways of protecting ourselves. And then if, like, um, I think for me, another thing that also helped me was also hear, listening to other people's stories. Mm. Like you hear different stories, how they've been neglected, how they themselves have decided to not have anything to do with HIV even when they have it in their bodies but to what point is that helping you as an individual it's not at all because as much as you can say you are free you're not because you're still fighting the fact that your boyfriend will never know your status you're not disclosing to your partners you're not tell and slowly because you think you're being smart the virus keeps spreading yeah. And as we want by the 2030 to have no new infections, looking at the way us as young people are living our lives and not protecting ourselves, it's not going to be achievable mm. if we're not going to talk about it. Even I remember in 20, I think that was 2045, we had the Think Talk Act yes. campaign. What happened to that? Why don't we talk about it now? You know, why don't we think about HIV? In my eyes, it's like the look left, look right. Yeah. That also went away and now people don't know how to cross the road. Exactly. You just run over. And, and just I fo- think that's the thing with some of these campaigns. It's not, it shouldn't be a campaign or it's, a challenge. It should be part of a lifestyle. Exactly. It, it should have be been a conversation continuous. every day. It should have been continuous. It shouldn't have come to an end. Mm. For me, I felt like because it came to an end, Nobody wants to think about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. Nobody wants to act. So we want to just sit and just wait for a miracle to happen. But how many people are going to sit? Because every year, I'm very sure even this year, we'll have a candlelight. Mm-hmm. And we'll sit down and talk about the same thing. A few people will gather and we'll have a discussion and say, okay, this is what we're going to do the coming year about HIV. I think it's an individual take. As much as government can do what they can, as much as people can come together, you as an individual, what's your take about HIV? Mm -hmm. You know, because unfortunately, it doesn't choose anybody. And it's, for instance, like what they're saying now is, in every home, there's one person who's infected. In every home, Mm -hmm. there's at least one member who's at least living with HIV or fighting with HIV. But what are we going to do about that person? Are we going to let them be or help them? So I think for me, this World Edge Day should, I think like I'll take what uh, Dr. Manasseh Piri used to say, World Edge Day shouldn't just be on the 1st of December. It should mm-hmm. be every day. Mm-hmm. Because Amen. we are fighting HIV every day. So it shouldn't be just because of the 1st of December. No, it should be every day. Every day should be World Edge Day because HIV is living amongst us. So I think for me, that's that's my take as in terms of somebody living with HIV, somebody who's an activist towards HIV. HIV shouldn't be something that 
oh we'll wait until first december okay i'll do this you know there'll be a podcast you know it should be every day every day you wake up think about the next person do you how is this person protected or if they have hiv are they adhering to treatment mm. are they living positively how is their mental situation is everything okay how is you know because the thing is we people with hiv we have our immunity is weak already and mm-hmm. mentally we are not okay and as much as we can try and stay with people and put a smile on our faces every day there's something that is troubling us it might be a headache it might be a neckache but there's always that one thing that mm. is not keeping you s- strong you know but because you have to be strong you have to take those drugs every day and i'm glad that this time the drugs have been really 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 reduced <laughs> and i'm glad i'm able to see this day because when i started taking my treatment i was taking almost about eight tablets because there was even symptom with time the drugs have been reduced and i'm now just taking like two tablets a day which for me i never thought i'll see this wow. day you see and it has been helpful because the, since 2014 i can proudly say my viral load has been suppressed which is possible for every other person who's living with hiv because that's our goal as a nation we want to see no new infections one yeah. day so what are we supposed to do to live healthy eat well and just stay happy like there's nothing wrong with living with hiv for me i think that's what i always tell somebody out mm. there don't feel discriminated or stigmatized or out of place because you have hiv like my mom says you don't know what the next person is what battle the next person is battling mm. you know because you might say they have hiv maybe the other person has got diabetes which is even worse because they have to inject themselves every morning or every evening you know mm. but you only have to take a tablet every day and you live you move on with your life so all those things are possible if you just one accept that this is who you are and move on with your life for me i think that's that's always my message like we only have one life and you can only live it once so what are you going to do about it are you going to cry your whole life and waste the happiest moments which you could have enjoyed by going out there and seeing the world and nature <laughs> or are you going to sit in your room and mourn the rest of your life and complain that you have hiv which if you take good care of yourself can even be prevented or is even manageable because well, so far, i'm going to stop you there because i think that's the perfect way to end off the podcast i think everyone should remember it does start with you you know as individuals in your communities in your households with your group of friends it does start with you um but just in case anybody wants to reach out to you and so far how can they do that are you on social media do you have yes website? i'm on social media um uh, on facebook um and so far petronella sampa on facebook and on i'm also on whatsapp <laughs> which is uh, my my whatsapp line is 0978-617-880 all right to see how you can help her with the work that she's doing in the fight against HIV. That is her contact information. Thank you, Nsofa, for joining me on Conversations with Lila B today and for shedding light on HIV AIDS and living with disability.
A reminder that World AIDS Day takes place on the 1st of December each year and is an opportunity for people worldwide to unite in the fight against HIV, to show support for people living with HIV, and to commemorate those who have died from an AIDS-related illness. And now, a word from our sponsor, Continuum Zambia. At Continuum, this day is so important for us because it speaks into our very reason of existence. Our purpose is wellness, sustainability, and longevity. And this year's theme is anchored on wellness. The future is our responsibility. Let's take action. Taking action means knowing your status. Taking action means taking your medication. Taking action means protecting the people you love protecting the unborn child and you can only do this responsibly if you test and know your status thank you for listening to conversations with lila b before we go show some love for your favorite podcast by giving us a star on anchor fm leaving us a voice message and commenting across all our social media platforms That's it for season one, but we'll be back again in the new year with more conversations. Until then, stay blessed and remember to show a little kindness to each other.